0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Two weeks ago, I did part one of a a two-part series, a little mini-series I wanted to do on reconciliation. And uh, and so I want to just take a couple of minutes to review what we talked about two weeks ago, and then I want to finish the passage, because we were working our way through Matthew 18, where Jesus spells out uh, four Uh, part reconciliation process, all right? But before we go there, I want to just start in Matthew 5, and I want us to remember the importance of reconciliation to God. And so Jesus starts uh, by saying in Matthew 5 on the issue of reconciliation, he says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift, Okay? And so in this passage, we see the priority and the passion in Jesus' heart for reconciliation in human relationships. Okay? Now, uh, don't be fooled. Like, when you read this passage, uh, Jesus is not saying it's always going to be this simple. Isn't that true? Like, don't you wish reconciliation was always this simple? Just go and get reconciled, and boom, you're reconciled. Okay? Okay? Uh, Jesus is, the point of this passage is not that reconciliation will always be this easy as you can just go and reconcile and it'll all be fixed. Uh, what we're seeing in this, passion, in this passage is Jesus' heart for reconciliation. But the fact of the matter is that reconciliation can sometimes be very complicated. And that's why in Matthew 18, Jesus gives us this kind of fuller exposition of some steps, a process to trying to get reconciliation in relationship. Okay, And so I'm going to just read you the two verses we covered two weeks ago, verses 15 and 16, about what is your... Oh, by the way, I should just say, again, rem- remembering throughout this, these messages on reconciliation, Romans 12, verse 18, let's always keep this in mind, that sometimes reconciliation isn't possible because one of the parties just won't go for it. And so I love this verse. Romans 12, 18 is just this beautiful kind of take the guilt and the pressure off where Paul says, if possible, okay, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, sometimes it won't be possible. Hopefully it's not you that's being impossible, but sometimes the other person might just refuse. I don't want reconciliation. And Jesus says the guilt isn't on you then. You can't control what another person does or doesn't do. You can't control how another person's gonna respond. So I love that this verse is in the Bible, and I want us to remember this throughout this entire message there in reconciliation, is the point isn't that you can make reconciliation happen no matter what. You can't. All you can do is your part. And then if possible, if the other person responds, uh, then you can have reconciliation. All right? So let's just remember that before you start feeling guilty in this message. Oh, but I've tried that. It didn't work. Just remember, if possible. Can you all say that back to me, by the way? If possible. Let's try it one more time. If possible. All right? So now let's go to Matthew 18. And let's read those two verses we covered two weeks ago, where Jesus says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, okay? And that's step one, right? That's what we looked at. And hopefully, you know, this is where the vast majority of conflict can be solved while it is still small, okay? And uh, unfortunately as well, too often as Christians, we don't even bother with step one. We get annoyed by something someone has done, we get annoyed, it could be in marriage, could be at work, could be in family, whatever it is, we get annoyed at someone, but instead of talking about it, we shove it down, shove it down, shove it down, until it bubbles over in bitterness or anger or something and what was, should have been small has suddenly become big. Jesus says step one is, it's gonna take a little bit of courage, it's gonna take a little bit of effort, It certainly would be easier in the short term to just shove it down and not talk about it. But Jesus says, that's actually the the chicken way, the courage way, the the biblical way is go and talk. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, okay? And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So like I said, you know, probably nine out of ten conflicts... And, and we have little, and again, conflict doesn't have to, we're not just talking about big, we're talking, like step one there has to do with all the, the minuscule things, the minor things, right? Like in a marriage, it could be, I, I don't feel like you clean up the sink after you wash up or shave or whatever, right? And you just think, well, yeah, that's a, Jesus wouldn't talk about that kind of stuff in the Bible. Do you realize it is exactly the little things, you know, that over the course of a marriage can really drive you nuts? Like, a, y- if you get a little pebble in your shoe and it's only there for a couple of seconds, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't hurt too much. You're like, oh, that's not too bad. But if you try to run a marathon with that little pebble, that little pebble will become a big deal. Okay? So Jesus says, uh, talk about it. Okay? Now, the key there is, as we talked about two weeks ago, you're not just talking to the person, you're going to listen as much as you talk. Because in most conflict... It's both parties have some some part in it. This is Jesus' model for how we relate to each other. This is how you love. You know, we all know the greatest commandment is to love God and love people. If you actually want to do that command and not just talk about it, this is one of the ways we love people. It's through reconciliation and dealing with conflict in a godly biblical way. Now, nine out of 10 conflicts, I don't know, somewhere around that, hopefully are of this variety that they can be solved at this level. But of course some conflicts can't be solved that easily. They're maybe a little more complicated or a little more volatile. So Jesus goes on and he gives us a step 2 if step 1 doesn't work, then there's a step 2. We talked about this as well 2 weeks ago, which is uh the next verse, but if he does not listen, Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so we talked about this two weeks ago, which is if you can't solve the problem at step one, you don't give up, okay? You're not not at the point yet where you can just say, hey, Romans 12, 18, if possible, I've done my part. If you haven't followed, if you haven't tried all of Jesus' steps, you're not ready to quit trying yet, okay? Okay? So step two is, we couldn't solve this thing, just the two of us, so step two is, we now bring in outside help. If you haven't brought in outside help to try and help you figure it out, you haven't done Jesus' message, okay? And a lot of people, well, first of all, too many Christians don't bother with step one, Uh, and then of those who actually do step one, too many of us give up before step two it's like i don't want to involve other people that's kind of embarrassing doesn't that make it you know it's 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 not really that big a deal maybe we think that but jesus says if step one doesn't work then you go to step two you bring in someone to help you you admit that we need help you admit we can't figure this out you bring in someone with okay to help you sort things out now how could that look well i found these really cool uh figures i was looking for stick figures and i found these instead they're much better but anyway Uh, How could this look? Now, there's no one way this could look, by the way. Jesus says you could take one or two witnesses. In other words, there's no, it has to be this way. But the idea is you get outside help to help you. So it could be, you know, offended party A, offended party B. Uh, They both agree. They both know someone. Maybe it's a a mutual friend or could be someone, you know, mutually respected. The key is that both people have to respect and trust this person. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And so they agree on someone, and they sit down with that person, and that neutral person helps to create a safe environment where a neutral person who maybe doesn't have the high emotions that are associated in the conflict can help you both figure out what you're each trying to get across. Okay? Really important. Now, it could also look different, because Jesus said, I mean, it could be one or two witnesses. For that matter, it could be, could be three or four. I, I don't know. Uh, probably the bigger it gets, the more complicated. But it could also look a little different than this. Maybe it's each of you bring a wise trusted, uh, you know, friend with, and you sit down, the four of you. The point is that you're not bringing in people who will inflame the conflict more. You're bringing in people you can both trust who are going to help calm things down and help you figure things out. Okay? Again, if you've given up before step two, you haven't got to Romans 12, 18 yet because you haven't followed Jesus' process. All right? So that's all stuff we covered two weeks ago. Now, what happens in the case where step two doesn't work, okay? So hopefully most conflict is solved in step one. Of the conflict that goes past step one, hopefully most of it can be solved here with a bit more of an informal meeting, some trusted friends or counselors or whatever to help you through it. If that doesn't work, Jesus has yet a third step in the process in Matthew 18. And so we'll go there and we see this in verse 17. It says this, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, okay? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's actually step four. We'll just look at step three first. If he refuses to tell them, to uh, to listen to him, tell it to the church, okay? So you've tried it one-on-one. You've tried it with some neutral, uh, trusted people. Now Jesus says you need to go to the church, okay? And right there, I read that verse as a pastor, and I go, oh my goodness, I really don't want to preach that verse because, oh my goodness, we are going to have a backlog. We're going to have a backlog of people calling us and saying, hey, you've got to help us with this, and you've got to help us with this, and you've got to help us with that. So let, let's just stop and just think about this just for a moment, okay? Um, because one of the things you have to understand about when you are applying a book, in this case this passage, is about 2,000 years old. And it's interesting what happens in translation When you take a word from a particular context 2,000 years ago, and you put that word into a modern context, it can often have, it could be the same word, but it can often have very different connotations of what that word means, okay? And such is most certainly the case in the case of this word, okay? So the word that is translated church in this passage and throughout the entire New Testament, and the translators are doing the exact right thing that they should and they're being consistent. The problem isn't that it shouldn't be translated church. It should. The problem is what we think of when we think of church is different than what any first century Jew could have conceived of, and then what Jesus and his disciples were thinking of. So the word ekklesia, actually what it literally means is assembly. That's literally what the word means. It just means assembly. Remember, when Jesus says ekklesia in the New Testament, there isn't even such a thing as a church as we understand church today. Were Christians because there were no Christians yet. Jesus hadn't died on the cross or rose from the grave. There wasn't Sunday services. You go to a building in evangelical churches and Catholic and, and in all these different kinds of churches, and you go on a Sunday and you listen to a message. That didn't exist when he said that word, ecclesia. In first century Judaism, ecclesia meant assembly, and it was used not just for religious assemblies, but for any kind of assembly. So in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word ecclesia or assembly is used any time the tribes of Israel got together for any reason, a festival. If the leaders of Israel got together to make a decision, that was an assembly. Ekklesia is what they used for the Greek translation. Uh, in ancient Greece, like in Athens, in ancient Greece, if you had the leaders of a city like Athens or Sparta or something, if they got together to make a political decision, that was an assembly that was called ecclesia. It just meant assembly. And in Jesus' time, it was, it was the word uh, also used, what we would say in English, synagogue, which was, could be used for anything. Again, it could be religious, it could be not religious. Uh, but literally, in the synagogue, in the ecclesia, is where in a Jewish community, all the big decisions were made. You would have a group of elders in that day and age. They were all men, okay? But that same group of elders would make decisions about civic matters, uh, legal matters, and yes, in the synagogue and in the assembly, also you would have gatherings for prayer and Bible reading and all sorts of things. But assembly was much bigger than just a, a worship service as we think of it today. Now, of course, in the, in the New Testament, the New Testament writers aren't talking to us about political things or civic things or how do we run a, the board of an institution, all of which, like, can you imagine, by the way? Literally, if the if city council here in Steinbach, if when they got together for a city council meeting, if they called that church, well, first of all, people would freak out. <laughs> but if they called that ecclesia, that is what political meetings were called in Jesus' day, okay? Um, so that was ecclesia. So when you take that word now, now, of course, in the New Testament, Anytime they're talking about assembly, because this is a manual for Christian living, not how to run a business or how to run a political institution. Of course, every time in here, when they're talking about an assembly, they're talking about an assembly of believers, most often for spiritual purposes, for prayer, for scripture reading, for whatever. So of course, over time, ecclesia for us as believers in the New Testament, obviously just comes to mean church, kind of as we have it here today. But if you try to make that interpretation here on this passage, what you actually get is something that in modern times actually doesn't really work. So because how would, how would this actually work? Because again, Jesus does not have in his mind a picture of something like this when he says to his disciples, go to the ecclesia. Certainly it wouldn't work for us to take any of your complicated situations and come up here on stage and have a discussion about your dirty laundry. Would any of you like that? So clearly the way we apply this, Jesus is talking about something, but the way we apply it can't be we're going to work these things all out in a church service. There's a second problem and that is this. When you talk about business matters or finance matters or legal matters today, those areas of society and culture have become way more complicated than they were 2,000 years ago. For example, like I said before, in in a Jewish ecclesia, a, 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 a synagogue, an assembly of the leaders of a community, you have a small community, the same group of men would make decisions on religious matters, political, civic, legal, anything. You would go to the same group of guys because they had the expertise they needed to rule in any of those areas. But things have gotten so complicated now. I mean, if you want to understand, for example, something about the Canadian tax code today, Don't come to me. (laughs) I had the privilege of reading some of the Canadian tax code in the last couple of weeks here at churches as it it applies to charitable law or some things we were discussing. And literally, I would read a paragraph and then I would look up and say, and what does that mean? I mean, accountants today go to school for how many years to figure out accounting practices? Lawyers go to school nowadays for how many years to figure out how to deal with the law? Uh, business people understand things about, uh, you know, books, balancing books and cash flow and things like that, that if you're not in business, you don't understand, right? So unlike in Jesus' day where, and Jesus, no question is, when he says Ecclesia, he no doubt means for the disciples to go to some kind of Christian authoritative group, because the goal is reconciliation, but he doesn't have in mind 2,000 years from now, if you had come for help, if you came to our church and said, look, we have some disagreements on what these numbers should say, we as pastors here at Southland, I have no problem admitting it, are woefully uh, you know, inadequate, not up to the job, to help you come to a fair or just resolution in terms of accounting or law. We're not prepared. We love Jesus, but if you come to us and say, help us come to a fair resolution on this, I will lay my hands on you and pray for you and say, oh, Jesus, help them come to resolution. And then I will tell you, go find someone who knows what they're talking about. (laughs) And I will encourage you to find reconciliation. That, That I will do, because that's clear in scripture. I will encourage you to do your best to forgive in those things, because as a pastor, those are the things I can stand confidently on. But in terms of your business practices or legal things or this deal went sour, we cannot help you with those things as pastors. We are not equipped to help you deal with those those things as pastors and we are not planning to become equipped in those areas ever. Because we'd all have to go to law school and then accounting school and it just doesn't work. So how would we apply step three in today's modern society? Let me tell you what What's the principle Jesus is getting at? Because he is telling them to do something. He's telling them to go to what? An authority. He said, you tried bringing in some trusted friends or whatever, now you go to an authoritative body of some kind. You- now, I would say ideally, and I would think, and I, I really strongly believe the thrust behind Jesus' message here, is if, if it can be Christian, I think that's the best, because the goal shouldn't be destroying the other side. The goal is reconciliation. Jesus' message here is to reconcile. So the goal is to come to some kind of a fair compromise, a resolution where you give a little, they give a little, and it's a just resolution. It's a fair resolution. So a pastor who's not trained in the areas you need isn't going to be able to help you do that. But if, if for example, it's something legal, maybe you find a trusted Christian who is an expert in the law, who's a lawyer or something, who helps you work this out. Or an expert Christian in accounting or business, and you bring some people in who are experts, who have some authority, and they help you sort it out. You couldn't do it with just some friends. It's too complicated, it's too volatile, you get some authoritative help. Does that make sense? Okay? Now how could this look? I gotta have to put my figures up there again, okay? And I got three colors this time, okay? Again, it doesn't have to look like this, but I want you to remember, you're saying, oh, this is, this is too difficult. This is just too difficult. I'd rather just stay mad and unforgive and not be able to look that person in the eyes ever again. It's a small community, right? Usually if you're mad at someone, they end up being family. <laughs> Isn't it true? And so how we deal with things is get mad at each other and then kind of just see each other when we see each other at the coffee shop or at the family gathering or whatever. And then kind of pretend things are okay, but I don't like you. And then we think, you know, Romans 12, 18, I just couldn't get resolution. If you haven't tried step three, you haven't followed Jesus' message. So yes, it's difficult. But yes, as a follower of Jesus, this is part of what it means to follow Jesus. We try to do this. Now, you say, yeah, but the other person refuses to meet with me. Oh, then it's a Romans 12, 18 situation. They won't do the process with you. They won't meet with you. That's not on you. All you can do is do your best. But if you haven't tried to do this, you haven't followed Jesus' message. So what this could look like is you got offended party A and offended party B. And together, because the goal is safety, is to come to a resolution that both people can trust, is to find some kind of authoritative person or body of people who will help you work this through. And maybe, maybe you each, maybe, because again, the point is to have safety, the point is that you want to create an environment where people are mishearing each other, maybe each person can bring a wise friend who's helping them work through these things and helping them say what they really mean. However the case doesn't need to be, but it could look like this. That is step three, okay? That's what Jesus says, all right? Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the ecclesia, the assembly, some kind of authoritative uh, body. Preferably believers that they're helping you to reconcile, not just to hate each other. But now we go on. What happens if even step three doesn't work? And Jesus actually talks about that as well. He says this. And if he refuses to listen even to the ecclesia, the assembly, okay, the church, okay, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, again, 2,000 years, and now you go, what does that mean? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, because we're all Gentiles here, okay? Or most of us, not all of us, maybe, but if, if you're not a Jew, then you're, you're a Gentile. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What is Jesus saying here, Okay. Well, you have to remember is 2,000 years ago. Uh, how did Jews in Jesus' day, religiously observant Jews, how did they interact with Gentiles and tax collectors? And the answer is they didn't. They didn't want to have anything to do with each other. There was, now, Jesus, by the way, isn't affirming that here. He's just speaking to them in language they understand. Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Every Jew hearing that message goes, oh, I know what that means. We no longer get together. Now you say, wait a minute, I didn't expect that to come from Jesus. And this is where we have so much Christian confusion. On the one hand, with steps one, two, and three, we would prefer not to actually tell the person that we're offended with them. But then when it comes to step four, we don't think it's Christian to separate from them. So we actually end up doing none of this. We instead push down our bitterness, and then we keep showing up at the family gatherings as if nothing happened. We don't do either. And Jesus says, actually, if you work through the first three, and you actually, as best you can, try to work things through, actually, there comes a place where you actually have to have separation in the relationship, because to pretend the relationship is close when it isn't actually won't help either of you grow grow closer to Jesus. In fact, it might cause both of you to grow to be more like the devil. (laughs) I'm serious. Sometimes, when steps one, two, and three... And remember this isn't me saying this this is Jesus saying this if you can't work through a really complex volatile situation then you actually need to have some separation in the relationship because otherwise you're gonna keep hurting each other and you won't be able to work on forgiveness because you'll just keep clawing and hurting and scratching each other and you'll just keep the wounds open if you can't work things out you actually both probably need some space in order to heal and truly forgive. It doesn't mean that you hate the other person, that's never allowed. You say, I thought Jesus said I love your enemies. Yeah, he did say that. But loving your enemy doesn't mean that you have to be in a close relationship with them where you continually sin by hurting each other. You can love someone from a distance and in a toxic relationship that it is sometimes the best thing to do, that's what Jesus is saying. Now, I'm going to talk about this again right at the end of the message very practically. I don't recommend, I don't think anyone should just on their own make the decision I'm cutting off a relationship when you're in a difficult situation. You want to know why? Because when you're in a difficult relationship and emotions are high, wisdom is low. When wisdom is high, usually emotions are lower. When emotions are high, wisdom is low. Very few of us, I would say probably none of us as human beings, are really equipped to make good decisions about uh, proper healthy boundaries or cutting a person off all on our own when we do these things in anger or hurt so what you do with step four is you find wise counsel and you make sure that that wise counsel thinks you've done your best step one two and three and then with wise counsel that's where a pastor can come in that's where the church can come in to then help you how do you set boundaries that don't hurt another person but that actually can promote reconciliation in the future if possible how do you separate in a way that's healthy and not unhealthy so get help for step four I will reiterate that at the end of the message okay but before we get to that there's one last rabbit trail I want to tackle in this whole thing and I want to tackle the subject of marriage as it applies to step four Okay? So Jesus says, there actually can come a place in relationship where you have worked your best. This, 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 and this. But the relationship is so toxic, it's destructive. You actually need to separate. You still need to forgive, but you actually need to have separation in the relationship. Now, my question is, is that meant to be applied to any relationship, including marriage? Is there ever a time when separation, and I'm not just talking about divorce, but ultimately it could include divorce, but is there ever a a time in a marriage where separation, maybe it's temporary, but where a step four, separation, actually is part of what should be applied to a marriage relationship, just as Jesus says in Matthew 18. And... A lot of Christians we don't know. There's, there's confusion, I think, often among Christians as to this because, and I'll tell you why, I really feel that in some ways, because marriage is such a wonderful thing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you how wonderful that thing is in just the next couple, few minutes, but I think sometimes in our zeal to raise up marriage, we've almost raised marriage to a status where it almost becomes idolatry. And it's almost like we get to this place where once a couple is married, it almost doesn't matter what could possibly happen, there is never a reason for any kind of separation, whether temporary or permanent. And the fact of the matter is that there are some things, even if you're here today and you're in a good marriage, that you need to understand about what the Bible actually says about marriage and what is God's heart towards people. And so the answer is, is there ever a situation where step four of Matthew 18 actually applies to marriage? And the answer is, yes, Jesus himself said it, and you see it up behind me in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, Jesus gives one example, actually, when step four, there might need to be separation in a a relationship, is actually permitted in a marriage. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 5. And let's just read it, okay? He says this it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, first thing I want to say is clearly in this passage, Jesus is not encouraging divorce, is he? He's not encouraging divorce. In fact, the purpose of this passage is actually to restrict the reasons why people were getting divorced. See, one of these you have to understand is in first century Judaism, where men had all the power and women had no power uh, legally or in those sorts of things. Uh, one of Moses, actually, he says, whoever divorced a wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. You know what he's quoting there? He's quoting the Old Testament. Deuteronomy actually gave allowance for people to divorce. And we'll talk about that in just a moment too. Why would God allow for divorce? Because there's actually something God cares about more than marriage. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But anyway, many of the men in Jesus' day had taken that allowance for divorce and turned it into a prescription for getting out of any marriage they wanted to. So if they weren't getting along with their spouse, if things were hard at home, which every marriage has hard times at some point, Okay? Uh, But if they were having hard times, they would just give their wife a certificate of divorce and just move on. And Jesus in this message is not encouraging divorce. He is saying, that is horrible. That is sin. Let's restrict this for you guys. The only reason you're allowed to divorce is because of adultery. Okay? So Jesus is not encouraging divorce here. However, I want you to notice, on the other hand, he is giving a reason why it could be permitted. He's not saying you have to Let me just say that too. This passage does not say you must divorce in cases of adultery. In fact, we have seen many cases, and I underline many here at this church where marriages have been healed and restored from adultery, very difficult. Adultery is incredibly destructive, incredibly painful, but we have seen spouses work through their stuff. We have seen miraculous, you know, forgiveness. We've seen all of that, but let me just say something else here. Not all adultery is created equal, did you know that? All adultery is horrific and terrible and brutal and destructive. But there is adultery that you can repair from when a spouse is repentant and they acknowledge what happened. And then there is the kind of adultery which is, could go on for many years and is full of deception and there isn't true repentance where sometimes maybe there is no return But I just want you to notice here that Jesus gives permission. He doesn't say you have to divorce, but he gives permission for divorce in the case of something as serious as adultery. Now, what does that tell us about marriage and about God's heart? I'm going to tell you what it tells us. This is what it tells us. And this is super important God loves marriage, but God loves people more. I want to say that again. God loves marriage he made it. God loves people more. That's why he gives an escape hatch because of the brokenness of humankind. God gives an escape hatch because for him, it's not marriage at all costs. It's people. And God says, I made marriage to be a wonderful, beautiful union that reflects who God is in the Trinity. But when broken, wicked people take marriage and a wicked, unrepentant person wants to use marriage as bondage, that they can keep another person close to hurt them over and over and over and over again and destroy them, God says, I will not allow you to do that because there's something more important to me than that marriage, and that is people. And he gives an escape hatch so that people can't be imprisoned to that kind of evil over and over and over again without end. Destructiveness. Once you realize that God loves marriage, but he loves people more, other passages in scripture also make more sense. 1 Corinthians 7. Let's read 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says this, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. I want you to notice again, the Bible is against divorce. So Paul says, if you're a believer and you have a spouse who's an unbeliever, and, and you want to love Jesus, and they are against you loving Jesus, and it makes your life super hard, but they don't want to divorce you, you're not allowed to divorce them. You don't divorce just because your marriage is difficult. Okay? And then he goes on to say, same for the women, if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever, and he live with her, she should not divorce him. But now I want you to notice what he says next. Verse 15, look at this. But if the unbelieving partner separates, I want you, these four words, I want you to feel the heart of God, the Holy Spirit, and Paul as he says this. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Let it be so. He doesn't say fight and scratch and claw and kick because it's the end of the world if your marriage ends. The fact of the matter is, marriage is really wonderful and divorce is really terrible, but it actually isn't the end of the world. And the fact that it's actually hard for us even to say that shows that I think perhaps we've elevated marriage a little bit beyond what it should be elevated to. Let it be so. He goes on to say, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. There's something more important than fighting and kicking and clawing and being a jerk in order to stop a divorce from happening, and that is peace. Let it be so. Now, I think sometimes the reason Christians get confused is because we pastors use an analogy sometimes, and we say, you got to fight for your marriage. And maybe it's an unfortunate analogy because maybe some of us have taken that to be Fighting for your marriage means fighting your spouse. Fighting for your marriage has zippo to do with fighting for your spouse. If you want to know when pastors say fight for your marriage, do you know what we mean? We mean the opposite of fighting with your spouse. We mean going above and beyond the call of duty to show love to your spouse. That's what fighting for your marriage is. It isn't yelling at someone telling them not to divorce you. It's as a husband, maybe planning a date or buying flowers or maybe turning off a hockey game one evening a week so you can talk to her. That would be fighting for your marriage. Or as a wife, it might mean actually sitting down with your husband and watching the Super Bowl tonight. That is not at all, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever, right? But fighting for your marriage isn't fighting your spouse. It's loving your spouse. Paul says, I love that. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Marriage isn't meant to be a tool for one spouse to enslave another. So Jesus gives us one example. He says adultery is an escape hatch it's that someone can't absolutely destroy. An unrepentant person can't continue to destroy a spouse. Again, divorce is terrible. God hates divorce. I hate divorce we know what the numbers say. We know that divorce hurts people. We know that divorce hurts children. We know that divorce hurts society. These are all things numbers prove out. But having said that, God loves marriage, but God loves people more. And there are toxic marriages where actually staying in the toxic is worse than being divorced or temporarily separated. Now, some Christians think that because, and well-meaning, intelligent, godly people, they think Because Jesus only mentions one example, adultery, that adultery is the only reason ever for someone to be allowed to separate or divorce. And so the question sometimes comes up, but what about abuse? What about abuse? Because nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the Bible does God say in cases of abuse you can divorce. So some people think you actually can't divorce in cases of abuse. Let me tell you why I disagree with that strongly, okay? And I'm going to use an extreme example that is incredibly, incredibly rare just to show you a truth. So we know that Jesus only says in cases of adultery, he gives this escape hatch, Matthew 5. But what would you say to, and let's make it a woman versus a man. I think it's easier to imagine. What would you say if a woman married a man and later found out he was a murderer, and he, she was now at danger, and maybe their children were now at danger, in danger of being murdered, would you, in that case, think Jesus would be okay with them separating or, and if he's completely unrepentant, huh, separating, which could lead to divorce? Does any of you think that would be wrong? And the answer is, and you're allowed to disagree with me on that, but I'm the pastor who will actually have to meet with people, um, and the answer is... Under no circumstances would that be a wrong thing for a woman to do. You say, yeah, but, but Jesus didn't say it was okay in the case of murder. Yeah, but I think we can infer it. Let me explain something about how the Bible works. <laughs> Let me explain something about how the Bible works. The Bible cannot give every possible example of what to do in every situation. Is that true? Because if it did, it would have to be very big having my devotions today. Trying to get to the Gospels. So why would Jesus only give one example in Matthew 5? I'll tell you why, because he's not giving a seminar on divorce. He's having a specific conversation about a specific problem. The problem in his day was men had all the power and were abusing that to divorce their wives for any reason. Those men who had all the power were not in, da- in danger of being abused in that day. So Jesus doesn't say, and if you get abused by your wife, they would have all just laughed at him. Okay? Well, it's true. They would have laughed at him. Okay? So Jesus doesn't say, and oh, by the way, but do you think if Jesus was talking to a, at a women's shelter, do you think he might have used different examples? I can guarantee you he would have. In the same way that we can... We just automatically know, yeah, in the case of a murderer, if you were married to a murderer, we're pretty sure Jesus would be okay with you separating and divorcing. But actually, when Jesus gives that escape hatch on adultery, anything, now obviously, we can't just extend that to any minor thing. The Bible says against divorce, but anything that's every bit as destructive as adultery is part of that escape hatch because God loves marriage, but God loves people more. And let's not pretend that abuse doesn't happen. Physical, sexual, emotional. I've been in in ministry way too long already here at Southland and I've heard way too many stories. Let's not pretend abuse doesn't happen. It happens outside the church. It also happens inside the church. And marriage was never intended by God to be a prison whereby one one abusive person can imprison another person for the rest of their lives. It just can't be used for that. And sometimes I know as Christians, there's a verse we quote, which I love and which is perfectly true, which is Malachi 2, which says this, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And it's really easy to remember the first three words of that passage, I hate divorce. But very few Christians have paid attention to the rest of the passage, there's not a period there. It says this, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence, by the way, Uh, most commentators will tell you, this is all in the context of a discussion about marriage. He is talking about physical abuse there specifically. And by the way, I have heard some horror stories. I know people who have been counseled by wonderful godly Christian people who were trying to do their best and they thought, keep the marriage together at all cost, who have been counseled to stay with a spouse who is a danger to sexually abuse their children and other various things where children were exposed to horrific things then because well-meaning godly Christians thought it would be more important to stay married than actually to be safe. And we just actually won't do that here at Southland. Amen. I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. God hates divorce, God hates, hates abuse more. Because God loves marriage, but God loves people more. God hates divorce, you better believe it. He hates divorce and divorce is terrible. And there's a huge difference between separating either temporarily or permanently because of a difficult or disappointing marriage. That is not a reason to to, to permanently divorce because you have a difficult or disappointing marriage. Now, sometimes in a very difficult marriage, there might be, with wise counsel, a reason to separate temporarily for the purposes of coming back together so you can both heal. Nothing wrong with that. But there is a difference between a difficult or disappointing marriage and a destructive or abusive marriage. And let me tell you, destructive abusive is way too common even within the church. So how do we apply this? Couple of things to think of. Let's all remember, even those of us who are in good marriages or who are not married, let's remember that God loves people more, therefore separation is sometimes needed whether temporary or permanent. Let's just remember that. And if we remember that, there's a second thing I want us to do. And that is, let's not judge those in our midst who have gone through a divorce or separation. Many people in Christian churches carry an intense stigma because they've been separated or divorced in the past. Thing is, we don't know what they've all gone through. We don't know how how they work through the process, In many cases, I know many people in this church who, for very legitimate reasons, had their marriage broken up. Other people didn't have great reasons. And you know what? We shouldn't judge them anyway. And the reason is because, yes, divorce is horrible, and it's not good for society, and it's not good for families, but you know what? It isn't the end of the world. And people can be forgiven and restored. I thank God for that because all of us make mistakes, aren't you? Secondly, don't make the decision. Highlight this. To separate or cut off a relationship, whether in marriage or in some other relationship, without first, let me just say that. If you think, okay, love that message. Ooh, I'm done with this relationship, this relationship, this relationship. You're not invited over to my house anymore. And yes, I just made my life a lot easier. When emotions are high, wisdom is low. So... Probably, if you are a regular human being, you are not capable of making that kind of a decision without wise counsel. Outside counsel, not just people who are your best friends. Get wise counsel as to whether you should have a separation in that relationship, whatever it is, and to how you do that in a way that at least leaves the possibility of reconciliation open in the future. And lastly, I want you all to stand now because I want to just pray for you, I want to pray for marriages, and I want to pray for miracles of reconciliation in 2020. And I want to pray that we're going to have the courage to follow Jesus' message, because where two or three are gathered in my name, where there has been an effort at reconciliation in a church, there God says, there I am also. Thank you, Jesus. I pray that 2020, for many of us, would be a year of reconciliation. I pray that you would wash away any spirit of condemnation or guilt that divorced or separated people feel when they come into this place. Help us to love marriage without condemning people. Lord, I pray for marriages in this place here this morning that are struggling. Give them the courage to go and find godly, wise help and bring tremendous restoration to every marriage in this place and to every difficult, volatile reconciliation situation in Jesus' name, amen.